This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. This is part two of our Romanov series covering the next 10-ish years of Nicholas and Alexandra's reign and family life. Quick note, if you're enjoying our podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. We love hearing from our listeners. Speaking of which, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. We are also Outlandish at Outlandish Historians on Facebook. And stay tuned for promos at the end of the episode for Wine Mind and Colt's Corner. By the way, have any of you seen The Last Sars on Netflix? Uh, we sure have, and the dramatized stuff was good. Um, we really like the actors. Um, and we thought it was really cool that they used some of Nicholas's diary entries as dialogue, but... It's definitely less docu, more drama. So we recommend a watch if you haven't seen it yet, but don't take it at face value. Please, please, please do not take this at face value. There are inaccuracies. I'll just leave it there. And please make sure you are above the age of 18. I'm just saying. All right. Also, if you think of any questions as you listen, reach out to us on social media through email, hello at dearworldlovehistory.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 267-477-4120. Yes, we do have a voicemail set up now. We'll give you a shout out and answer your questions in our next episode. Now, let's head on back to Imperial Russia, 1896. Okay, so in part one, we covered Nicholas and Alexandra and all the juicy and depressing things within their background. The mourning period for Alexander III is finally over, and now the young Tsar and Tsaritsa can finally be crowned. So when does this take place? May 1896. Olga is six months old at this point, but while mom and dad were on their way to Moscow for their coronation, little Olga was left behind. Too much excitement for one little baby, I guess. Plus... How awkward would it be if she started crying in the middle of the ceremony? Or worse, a bad omen. Remember, we Russians are a superstitious lot. The coronation was big and spendy and took place within the Kremlin at Uspensky Cathedral. It was as lavish as you would expect for a czar, especially for the richest monarch in the world. And at that time, Nicholas was the wealthiest ruler in existence. So during the ceremony, Nicholas prayed all by his lonesome for his country and his people. Literally, everyone just stood there and watched. And then, like monarchs before and after, he was anointed with holy oil and then took his oath. As Tsar, Nicholas would reign over the Russian Empire as emperor and autocrat of all the Russias. Once this was done, Nicholas actually crowned himself. He took the crown from the guy who was in charge of holding it for the Tsar and stuck it on his own head. And what? Unusual? Did George V crown himself or even Henry VIII? Nope, because in Russia, things were done differently. As the autocrat, Nicholas held the power and thus could crown himself and his wife, which he did right after. He took the crown off his head and placed it on Alexandra's head ever so gently 
before returning it to his own head. Alexandra then got to wear a crown of her own. Long live the Tsar and Tsaritsa, emperor and empress of all Russia. Now a bit about this heavy headgear. The crown was actually made for Catherine the Great in 1762, and it's been used to crown the Tsar ever since. The Imperial Crown of Russia, as it was known. And since it was such a heavy piece of headwear, Nicholas actually wanted to use the 800-year-old cap of Monomach, or Monomacha in Russian, which weighed in at two pounds, and was a lot more simple, much less sparkly. And can you blame him? In all honesty, I think my neck muscles would immediately cry out in protest, holding up an extra nine pounds on my head. But alas, tradition. And then there's Nicholas's full title, which we just have to share. It is, and literally, hold on to your hats. It is Emperor and Autocrat of all the Russias, Tsar of Moscow, Kiev, Vladimir, Novgorod, Kazan, Astrakhan, of Poland, of Siberia, of Torek Shersonese, we don't even know how to pronounce that one, of Georgia, Lord of Pskov, Grand Duke of Smolensk, of Lithuania, Volinia, Podolia, Finland, Prince of Estonia, Livonia, Courland and Semigalia, Samogotia, Bialystok, Krelia, Tver, Yugoria, Pierm, Vyatka, Bulgaria, and other countries. That's literally in the title, and other countries. Lord and Grand Duke of Lower Novgorod, of Chernigov, Rizan, Polotsk, Rostov, Yaroslav. We don't know how to pronounce this one either properly. We even asked our dad, the Russian-speaking man, and also wasn't sure, so... Best guess is Bielaziro, Udoria Abdoria, Kondia, Vitipsk, Mstislav, and all the region of the north, lord and sovereign of the countries of Iveria, Cartalinia, Kabardinia, and the provinces of Armenia, sovereign of the Circassian princes and the mountain princes, lord of Turkestan, heir of Norway, duke of Schleswig-Holstein, of Stormen, of the Ditmars, and of Oldenburg, etc., so, is this where George R. R. Martin got the idea of giving his characters extremely long titles? Here's looking at you, Daenerys. With the coronation over, it was time to party like it was 1896. Thousands of people were standing outside waiting for Nicholas and Alexandra to show their faces after being crowned. When they did, they bowed to the crowd three times, and people went nuts over their new rulers. People were cheering, cannons were booming, it was a moment of absolute triumph. And then it came time for the rich to stuff their faces. Over 7,000 people were guests at the coronation banquet. This included grand dukes, princes, ambassadors from foreign countries. So what was for dinner? Off a fancy menu, the guests could choose things like borscht. We'd order three bowls full, let's be honest. Pepper pot soup, steamed fish, pheasants in a cream sauce, and ice cream. Let's not forget dessert. As for Nicholas and Alexandra, they ate alone, separate from everyone else. The visiting ambassadors could come up one at a time to drink a toast to the newly crowned rulers. And then, a few days later, the people of Russia had the chance to celebrate Nicholas and Alexandra as well. Grand Duke Sergei, Nicholas's uncle and the governor general of Moscow, had planned a day of feasting and merrymaking for the peasants. It was tradition. We're going to encounter that word a lot with the Romanovs. Anyway, 5,000 people showed up for free food, free beer, and free souvenirs. What? Souvenirs? Why, yes, indeed. Each person who came could go home with a limited collector's edition cup with the imperial seal on it. They walked throughout the night from all over Russia to get to Kadinka Field. And more than that, the Tsar and the Tsaritsa were supposed to come and hang out with them. 
Not in the traditional sense, of course. People weren't about to start chugging beers with the newly minted Nicholas II. But they'd get to see Nicholas and Alexandra, these untouchable royal beings, up close. And then, tragedy struck. Some way, somehow, people got wind that there wasn't enough beer, food, souvenirs, etc. for everyone who showed up. Was it a rumor or a fact? We don't know. What we do know is that a day that was meant to be filled with happiness and laughter and the Russian people filling their bellies turned into a stampede. People were pushing, trying to get whatever food and gifts were available. There were planks all over the field, covering ditches. And then these planks started collapsing under the weight of so many bodies. People were falling in or falling to the ground. Men, women, and children, young and old, were caught beneath frantic feet, trampled to death. By the end of this, about 1,400 people were lost. When Nicholas and Alexandra were told about Kadinka Field, they were horrified. How could they possibly attend a ball the same night this happened, even if it was being thrown for them? They couldn't. Nicholas was ready to send the French ambassador his regrets, which was the right thing to do. But his uncle Sergei wouldn't hear of it. But what? Insult the French ambassador and by extension France? Well, that would just make things so much worse. Sound logical, right? His own Russian people, dead or injured, but he couldn't possibly insult the French by skipping a ball. I'm sure they would have understood. But instead, Nicholas and Alexandra made their first huge mistake as rulers. They dressed up, showed up at the ball, and danced a bit. One reporter basically said that they were dancing on top of the dead. And was he wrong? A day late and a dollar short, the Tsar and Zaritsa tried to show their people that they cared. They went to the hospitals. They shelled out money for funerals, with the dead given their own graves instead of being buried in a mass grave, which was apparently the norm when death was on a scale like this. They also made sure the families got a thousand rubles as compensation. Not only was this all too late, but this happened right after they were crowned. And so, this was all seen as a bad sign. Uh-oh, the Tsar would have an unlucky rule. On the other hand, we start seeing the first signs of discontent and revolution. Small, almost unnoticeable to the masses, and especially to high society. To them, this tragedy was the perfect example of how vain and uncaring the imperial family and their court truly were. So, with all of this said and done, Nicholas and Alexandra set off to visit with European rulers in their own countries during the summer. This was always a part of the plan, tragedy or not. This ended with their visit to Denmark to spend 10 days with Nicholas's grandma and grandpa, King Christian IX and Queen Louise of Denmark. When Olga was 10 months old, September 1896, the little imperial family went on a lovely highland vacation to Balmoral Castle in Scotland. Here, they were able to relax and enjoy family time with each other and, of course, with Queen Victoria and her children and other grandchildren, which was all really normal, as normal as it gets for royals, anyway. And everyone was in love with baby Olga. Victoria loved to spend time with her and play with her, going so far as to watch Alexandra bathe her. One of the many royal family members who apparently found simple pleasure in watching Alexandra the mother wash her baby and enjoy herself while doing it. And this is what happens when you read all your books and don't have a TV. So while Alexandra was having a blast being back in England, Nicholas was not. He was experiencing neuralgia pain and his face had actually become swollen due to a rotten tooth. And he also spent most of his days away from Alexandra outside in the cold, rainy weather, 
all thanks to his uncle Bertie, the Prince of Wales. And it's at Balmoral where baby Olga learned to walk. Young David, son of the future King George V and himself the future Edward VIII, was two at the time. And boy, did he love spending time with his cousin Olga. She learned to walk by holding on to his hand. Well done, David. Well done. And this turned into, will they or won't they? Maybe, one day, Prince David will marry the fair Grand Duchess Olga and, oh, wouldn't they be a darling couple. I'm pretty sure marrying off barely one-year-old Olga was the last thing on Nicholas's and Alexandra's minds. Eventually, the Russian royals left England and traveled to France, where they received a very hearty welcome, which is a good thing since this was an official visit to the country. As Nicholas and Alexandra's carriage went by, people were cheering and waving like crazy, and the carriage carrying Olga got just as big of a rousing welcome. People were screaming, Vive la bébé! And Vive la grande duchesse! Even the nanny got cheers of Vive la nounou! And all of this is completely ironic, considering what the French did to their own monarchy during the French Revolution. But I guess since they didn't need to keep them, a short visit was exciting. So the imperial family stayed at the Palace of Versailles for the night. And if this doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies, I don't know what will. Like some epic foreshadowing in a historical fiction novel, Alexandra spent the night in Marie Antoinette's old rooms. Talk about a bad omen. In addition to their whirlwind tour, Nicholas and Alexandra received other happy news in September 1896. Baby number two was on the way. And like pregnancy number one, Alexandra was having a rough time, worse than before, if we're being honest. She was eventually bedridden for seven weeks since her nausea was so bad and her legs became swollen. A miscarriage had to be prevented. And luckily, though, after those seven weeks, Alexandra could finally get out of bed to go outside. But this had to happen in a wheelchair. Just as it had been when Alexandra was pregnant with Olga, any and all news regarding Alexandra and her condition were kept firmly under wraps. It wasn't until 1897 that it was made public knowledge. Even Nicholas's own family members didn't know until that point. So, good news, right? Another baby, maybe an heir. Well, since the imperial couple didn't let any news circulate regarding the pregnancy until later, it ended up looking really bad for Alexandra. That German woman? Always sick. Why? With what? The Russian people didn't know, but it didn't stop them from wondering about it. With this, Alexandra's reputation took an even bigger nosedive. Came to us behind a coffin. Check. No boy the first time around. Check. Sickly. Check. The woman was bringing nothing but bad luck to Russia and their czar. And to make matters even worse for her, Alexandra was being outshined in the baby-making department by other family members, her own and Nicholas's. Princess Irene, her sister and the wife of Henry of Prussia, had two boys to show off at this point. And Nicholas's sister, Xenia, had a second kid also, this time a boy. Alexandra was getting anxious and worried. One of her main duties was to produce an heir, to secure the line of succession. Remember, in Russia, the heirs could only be boys, and if the Tsar did not have a son, the imperial crown would pass to a male sibling and his sons, or a female sibling's sons. Talk about pressure. Well, a woman could eventually rule if all the boys died, which probably wasn't happening anytime soon. Nope, not unless they were all poisoned. At the same time at the dinner table. Uh Uh-huh. Or all shot dead. At the same time at the dinner table. (laughs) Dinner tables, they're so convenient for so many reasons. (laughs) All right, so 
Towards the end of May 1897, Nicholas and Alexandra headed off to Peteroff Palace in St. Petersburg, and on June 10, 1897, Grand Duchess Tatiana Nikolaevna came into this world. Another girl, not the long-hoped-for son. Luckily for Alexandra, the labor was a little easier for her this time around. Little Tatiana weighed in at eight and three-fourths pounds, and apparently she looked very much like Alexandra. Another girl? People were upset by this. Two kids in, and still no boy. As if either one of them had any control over the child's gender. Even Alexandra was. Not upset, really, but put off is probably the best way to put it. She loved her second daughter, but now she really had to bring a boy into this world. The only person who seemed thrilled by Tatiana's arrival was Nicholas himself. Another girl to love and nurture? Sounds good. In his diary, he wrote, The second bright day in our life. The Lord blessed us with a daughter, Tatiana. Although, Grand Duchess Xenia also thought Tatiana was a lovely little baby. So maybe two people were happy about this. And God, what a horrible way to talk about babies being born. An event that should always be a happy day, a beautiful new life, was like a business transaction in royal courts. Girl? Eh, do, ne- do better next time. Boy? High five, lady. Now, with two babies in the nursery, Alexandra's life became even more focused on her family rather than her public duties and appearances as the empress of all Russia. Which so did not help matters at all. Most evenings were spent in Alexandra's favorite room, her lilac sitting room. There were books for her to read, but there were also toys for the little girls to play with. Now, no one can say that Nicholas and Alexandra weren't trying, because by the fall of 1898, Alexandra was sporting a new accessory. Baby number three. And yet again, Alexandra was both anxious about giving Russia an heir and suffering through the pregnancy. Alexandra had to spend most of her pregnancy in bed, and if she wanted to go out and about, someone had to push her around in a bath chair. On February 2nd, 1899, the new nanny joined the payroll. Margarita Eager, or it might be Eager. We're really not sure, so we're really sorry in advance. And she was an Irishwoman. Now, there was someone else to help Alexandra out with the girls, and someone who would help when all three children were in the nursery, especially since Alexandra's pregnancy was so debilitating for her. Then, on May 9th, the Imperial family again moved on over to Peteroff Palace to await the birth of the third baby. Fingers crossed, this one was a boy. On June 26, 1899, little Maria Nikolaevna was born, weighing in at 10 pounds. This little girl, or not-so-little girl, was named for her grandmother, Maria Fyodorovna. It's at this point that both Nicholas and Alexandra start wondering what the fuck is going on, both from large families with more than one son and still no son for them. And to make it even worse, being pregnant wasn't getting any easier for Alexandra. How many more pregnancies did she have in her? Nicholas came to the conclusion that this was God's will, okay? God wanted them to have three daughters. There, it's all settled. A third girl is a blessing. Good for Nicholas, even worse for the Russian people. Another girl? What is wrong with this German woman? Why can't she have a boy already? Interestingly, media outside of Russia were reporting on the three little royals with gusto. They're adorable, precocious, pretty, happy little girls. But in the Russian court, things were viewed differently, as in, why the fuck was Alexandra so attached to her kids? Is she the Tsaritsa, or is she the only a mother? 
She spent a lot of time with her daughters, and when she was looking at court documents, the girls were always around, sitting in her lap, being rocked to sleep, you know, natural things that a mother would want to do. I get it, she's not being the empress they want her to be, but at least there was some A-plus parenting going on, which is more than can be said for other nobles and royals of Europe. The true downside, though, not the personal disapproval people had because of their own expectations regarding how the Tsaritsa should or should enact, was that by spending so much time with her babies and Nicholas, Alexandra pulled away from the court more and more. And it's this, really, that was the driving force behind the court gossip and dislike of her. As the empress of all the Russias, Alexandra had to be seen to go out and about, actually be at court. But since that's exactly what Alexandra hated, she did it less and less. The only public thing she truly loved was her charities, just as her mother, Princess Alice of England, had instilled in her. You know, some of her works included setting up workhouses the poor could go to and making sure midwives were available in the country. She was very concerned and worried about maternal and infant mortality rates. Um, So she wanted to make sure more women and children survived the grueling ordeal of childbirth in the late 19th century. Up until this point, Nicholas's brother, the Grand Duke George, or Georgi, was his heir. So if the imperial couple wasn't blessed with a boy, then George would become the Tsar when Nicholas passed. In part one, we talked a bit about George's own health condition. He had tuberculosis since he was a child. Well, in August 1899, very sadly, Grand Duke George passed away. At this point, he was the Tsarevich. As a result, the next in line to be czar was Grand Duke Mikhail, or Michael, Nicholas's youngest brother. And now everyone is starting to panic a little. Holy crap, one Romanov brother dead, only one left, and still no bouncing baby boy for the czar. Nicholas was still hoping that he and Alexandra would have a boy, so the title of Tsarevich at this point was left vacant, waiting for a son to be born. And the imperial couple started leaning towards desperation, which is never a good thing. Alexandra started praying harder, hoping that God would grant them a son. In come Nicholas's cousins, Grand Duchesses Melitza and Anastasia, known as the Dark Sisters since they had some witchy woo-woo going on. Good thing witch hunts weren't a thing anymore, and that they were rich and royal. So would they be classified as eccentric? I think that's what we do when people are rich and have influence. If they were poor, they'd probably be labeled batshit crazy. So they recommended that Nicholas and Alexandra meet with one Dr. Philippe, a mystic who was very much not a doctor. He was a magic man, capable of healing sick people through chanting, acting as his own ultrasound machine since he could apparently tell whether the bun in the oven was a boy or a girl. And even, get this, abracadabraing said bun from one gender to another. The last one, Renee and I find incredibly impressive. Move over, Dumbledore. There's a more magical wizard afoot. Naturally, Nicholas and Alexandra had a meet and greet with Dr. Philippe. At this point, Alexandra was pregnant with baby number four. This very capable and reliable mystic gave them a set of instructions to follow to ensure this baby would be a boy. What sort of instructions, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. Praying even more hardcore, chugging herbal drinks, which probably tasted vile, and taking moonlit baths on astrologically lucky days. We don't know about them but were definitely mystified by these so-called remedies. At the end of October 1900, Nicholas came down with a case of the flu, followed by some form of typhus. The Tsar was incredibly sick at this time, and so the question arose, what will happen if the Tsar dies and only three young daughters are left behind? But Nicholas was also a man who didn't really get sick all that much. So was he completely miserable? Absolutely. 
Was he in danger of dying? Not so much. But it did weaken him since it kept him in bed for five weeks, and Alexandra was the one nursing him back to health, pregnant and all. Still, it was something people worried about, even Nicholas himself. If he died and Alexandra wasn't carrying a boy, he wanted Olga to become Empress of Russia. So when he was up and about, he ordered his government ministers to create a document stating this. If Nicholas died and there was no boy on the scene, Olga would rule. And speaking of the girls, people liked seeing them and their smiling little faces. When it came to raising them, Nicholas and Alexandra made sure the girls were brought up with the same simplicity their mother and father were. This meant simple clothing, aka matching white dresses and a whole lot of fresh air, hot or cold. Manners were a must, royal pomp and circumstance were not. And of course, lots of time spent playing with their parents. Unfortunately, the girls all get lumped together in history and in their lives, but they were different from one another. Even at this point, Olga was gentle and kind and could also speak Russian and English fluently. Tatiana was the more playful of the girls, and Maria was learning to walk. Very important. And then, another tragedy. In January 1901, Alexandra's beloved grandmother Victoria, Queen of England, passed away at age 81. As with any loving granddaughter, she wanted to race off to England to pay her respects. But she was four months pregnant at this point. There was memorial service held at the English church in St. Petersburg, and Alexandra, Normally reserved, stiff upper lip in public, Alexandra let her heartbreak show. She was crying and mourning publicly. What makes it even more tragic is that during the summer of 1900, Victoria had asked Alexandra to come for a visit. The visit never happened. But on to happier endeavors. On June 18, 1901, baby number four came into the world. And if you're thinking it's another girl, you'd be right on the money. Anastasia Nikolaevna, or... Anastasia Nikolaevna was born at the lower dacha in Peterhof, weighing it an 11 and a half pounds. It's easy to imagine people stopping to listen to the cannon's boom, hoping that an heir was born, and then being extremely disappointed that it was, an, it was just another girl. Womp womp. At this point, Nicholas was also disappointed. Another child is a blessing, but she wasn't the long-hoped-for son. But again, God had willed this child to be born a girl. So he moved on and planned a christening with all the bells and whistles to show everyone that Anastasia was very much wanted. Disappointed in a fourth girl? Not us. She's the perfect addition. So with four girls running around the nursery and almost nine years into their reign, the Tsar and Tsaritsa of Russia were throwing a costume ball on February 12, 1903 at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Members of the imperial family and members of the 870 noble families of Russia would be at this ball. One book we read, The Family Romanov, states that the nobility was known as the Belaya Kost. Literally translated, it means white bone, which is how the Russians referred to their blue bloods. Now, most of these families dated back to the time of princes and kings, before the Romanovs even reigned. And these snooty-falooty people only ever stayed within their own circle of wealth and luxury. When they received the invitation to Nicholas and Alexandra's ball, they were over the moon excited. A. It was a ball. Thrown by the emperor and empress. B, those two so rarely threw parties, especially one on this scale, that if the theme were nudity, the nobles probably would have stripped and arrived as frozen Russian popsicles. But this was a very special celebration. It was St. Petersburg's birthday. 200 years ago, the capital of St. Petersburg was founded. 
As a result, high society had to arrive dressed in their best, 17th century clothing. Nicholas arrived dressed as Alexei I, the Tsar Nicholas most admired. Both his and Alexandra's costumes were beautiful and elaborate. Alexandra's costume, made with gold brocade, diamonds, pearls, and emeralds, cost about 1 million rubles, which today is about $10 million. Someone give me a fan. I almost fell over. In regards to the costumes, make sure you check out our show notes for a link to an article showing colorized photos of the imperial couple and their ritzy guests in their gorgeous costumes. Um, You can find links throughout. Um, Links will also be at the bottom of the show notes. Um, And for your convenience, the show notes are actually linked in the episode description. Or you could just head on over to dearworldlovehistory.com, hit podcast, and then choose the episode. Um, And a huge shout out and thanks to Kara for finding the article and sharing it with us. It was, these pictures are incredible. So thank you so much, Kara. You're beyond awesome. All right. The ball is over. So by 1903... Again, with four little girls, toddling about in the nursery throughout the palace, learning discipline was an absolute must. As Nicholas had done when he was a boy, the girls slept on army beds. But let's not get too crazy. It wasn't completely awful. Narrow as the beds might have been, and probably uncomfortable, you know, at least by our standards, the girls were allowed satin comforters. A little pampering wouldn't get in the way of the lessons they were learning. Now, normally the girls were split into two pairs when it came to their sleeping arrangements. There was the big pair, as they were known, Olga and Tatiana, and they shared a room. Then there was also the little pair, which was Maria and Anastasia, who shared a room with each other. However, there is some fun to be had. Around Christmas time, things were a little different. There were several trees set up throughout the family's living quarters, and one of those trees was actually in the girls' playroom. So at night, the girls would drag their cots into the room and fall asleep together, looking up at the tree. Now, if you're thinking the army cots were the worst of it, think again. Two words. Cold baths. At least in the morning. Sucked either way, but all right. Um, You know, it's probably not as bad during the summer, since it was warmer, but think about the winter. That must have been awful. Don't fret, though. The girls did get to bathe in warm water at night. Fashion, though, that was an entirely different animal. There was no way Alexandra was going to skimp on what the girls were wearing. Only the best for her girls, which meant beautiful white dresses and blue ribbons for their hair. Alexandra had a habit of dressing them in matching outfits. And we have a question. What is that? Is it a Russian thing? It, you know, Renee and I aren't twins, but our mom used to dress us in matching outfits when we were younger. Yes, we have pictures. No, we won't share them. No matter how you try to convince us, it's not happening. In any language that you ask. No. Well, probably not, but no. And if you were dressed in the same outfit as your sibling and you're not twins, please let us know. We need to know. Is it a Russian thing? Is it a mom thing? Like, what is this? Anyway, their day-to-day lives were pretty much the same. There wasn't much, if any, variation to their schedules. They'd be woken up by their nanny, and then, while still in their bedclothes, would head into their parents' room to kiss Alexandra good morning. Nicholas wouldn't be there, though, since, um, you know, he was already up and about, running a country and all that. Busy, busy guy. Then, the girls would get dressed and eat breakfast. So this was done in their playroom rather than down at the dining room table, because it would only be them, which is kind of silly to get the entire, you know, staff just to wait on four small children. Then the girls were off to see Dr. Botkin, who was the court physician. Every day, he would check them out and make sure there were no medical issues that had popped up in the last 24 hours. Couldn't be too careful with the Grand Duchesses. 
But mid-morning was when the fun started. It was time to go to the park, obviously with Nanny and guards in tow. The girls could ride their bikes, or or they could play on what was called Children's Island. In the park, there was a tiny little island that had a playhouse built on it with a drawbridge and everything. Super cute, right? So the girls could go in there and play. There was even tiny furniture. And sometimes Olga and Tatiana were allowed to get in a boat and row themselves across to the island rather than lowering the bridge. Now that's how you play in style. Move over, Barbie Dream Home. And in the winter, like all children, what's more fun than building a snowman and sledding? Pretty normal, right? For four little princesses? You know, and to be honest, Russia had more than enough snow for the girls to really enjoy themselves during the winter. After playing and maybe even wearing themselves out a little, or not, since children have an endless supply of energy, oh my god, to be young. Give us that energy. I don't remember what that's like, to be young. Is it because it was so long ago? So long ago. It feels like it was 80 years ago. (laughs) Or is it because we're so traumatized by how much energy we don't have? (laughs) It could be a combination of the two. Give me a cane. (laughs) What? (laughs) Get out. (laughs) Okay, so after all of this fun, it was lunchtime. Now, unlike breakfast, this was an entire affair. The court gathered to dine with the Tsar. All four girls sat beside Nicholas at the head of the table as they were served foods like cabbage soup and boiled fish. Yes to the soup, probably. Not so much to the boiled fish. I reject both. I Give me they... some borscht. Well, isn't, like, cabbage soup the vegetarian option, technically? Uh, it, yeah, but that's mostly, like, cabbage. It's literally cabbage soup. No, thank you. I'll take some caviar. Okay. Belly's full. Nicholas returned to work, and the girls went back to their playroom or to visit their mother, Alexandra, who didn't get out that much. And the girls would sometimes go on carriage rides through the park or out and about town. Fresh air was the goal. During these outings, there would be guards, policemen, you name it, placed everywhere. Literally. According to The Family Romanoff by Candace Fleming, there was a protector hiding behind every tree and bush. Talk about security. Alright, Alexandra and the girls wouldn't be able to scratch their nose without one of the guards seeing, let alone allow someone close enough to hurt them. The family security was no joke. The first time in the day the family came together as a whole was for tea time, which was in Alexandra's lilac sitting room. This was around four in the afternoon. Tea and biscuits were served by Alexandra instead of having someone from the household staff do it for her. This was the family's time together to relax and decompress, though they were often doing, like, different things entirely. So Nicholas often read, sometimes smoked, Olga and Tatiana worked on their embroidery skills because that was super important, and Maria and Anastasia entertained themselves by playing on the floor. Well, when you're young, anything can entertain you, I guess. Well, plus, remember, there there was a basket of toys in Alexandra's sitting room, so they could pull that stuff out. I'm just imagining them sitting on the carpet and just... Pulling out fibers? Yeah. I don't know. All right. So it was August 12th, 1904, a day like any other when... Just as lunch was about to be served, Alexandra went into labor. It's not quite clear if her pregnancy was ever announced, as we didn't come across that in our research as we had for Alexandra's other pregnancies. So who knows? After a relatively easy birth, a baby boy was born. Finally, 
Alexandra had provided an heir for Nicholas. So one of our sources said he weighed 8 pounds when he was born. Another source said he weighed 11 and a half pounds. So we've decided to split the difference and say he weighed 9 and 3 fourths pounds. That's how math works, right? I think so. All right. This was the first time since the 1600s that an heir had been born to the Tsar rather than the Tsarevich. Up until this point, Tsars were crowned with an heir or a few already waiting in the wings. After four children, the cannons could finally fire the 300-gun salute from the Peter and Paul Fortress to announce and celebrate the birth of the Tsarevich. Just as the people had done before, they stopped what they were doing to listen for the 102nd cannon. It took five minutes, but when it sounded, the people of St. Petersburg were ecstatic. Work was done for the day. There was celebrating to do. The national anthem was sung, restaurants served champagne for free, people waved flags. There were special services held to celebrate the occasion. It was such an important day for the Russian people. To add to the mix of excitement, Nicholas was so happy to have a son that he actually made some political changes to the way his country was run. He completely threw out the idea of beatings as a punishment for the peasants and those serving in the armed forces. Obviously, these weren't beatings for fun, but beatings given as punishment for some kind of infraction. Fines were also kicked out for a ton of crimes. He created a scholarship for the military and naval branches, and as he had done with when Olga was born, he granted pardons to prisoners, but not the murderers, of course. That would have been a recipe for disaster. So, what was this beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy named? He was named Alexei Nikolaevich, after the Romanov Tsar Alexei I, who ruled from 1645 to 1676. Alexei I was the second Tsar in the Romanov dynasty, and he was the proud, one would hope, Papa of none other than Peter the Great. Alexei's full title was His Imperial Highness Alexei Nikolaevich, Sovereignaire Zadovich, Grand Duke of Russia. And he was perfect from his head to his toes. Twelve days after his birth, Alexei was christened at Peterhof Chapel, the same chapel all the girls had been baptized in. Princess Maria Golitsyna was the lucky lady in charge of carrying Alexei for the occasion. Now, this sweet woman, who was already up there in age, was super worried she was going to drop the Tsarevich, so someone got super crafty and made a sling for her to help her carry Alexei without issue. She was also wearing non-slip shoes. Very practical. Nicholas even waited outside the chapel, since he couldn't be inside during the christening. Remember, tradition. He worried the whole time that someone would drop his son. And considering Maria's age, as well as Father Yanishev's, can't much blame him. I'd be worried too. Almost the entire family was in attendance, including the 87-year-old King Christian IX of Denmark, Alexei's great-grandfather, who, in their right mind, would want to miss this christening, or a chance to visit the imperial family at home afterwards. Crazy people, that's who. This was a happy event. And to make things even happier, Olga was actually one of Alexei's godmothers. Fitting, considering she was his eldest sister. Unfortunately, we're going to have to interrupt this happy moment to bring some awful news. This is where we have some differing accounts. Most of our research says that after six weeks of joy, love, and merriment, Alexei started bleeding from his belly button. However, Helen Rappaport, author of the Romanov Sisters, mentions that the bleeding from his belly button actually started the moment they severed the umbilical cord when he was born. 
It took two days to stop the bleeding in both instances. And at the end of the second bout, Nicholas and Alexandra were freaking out. What the hell was going on with their little Alexi? And it was the most horrific diagnosis. Hemophilia. The average lifespan of a child with hemophilia at the time was 13 years old. That's not to say they couldn't live longer. Prince Leopold, Queen Victoria's son, had died when he was 30. On the other hand, Alexandra's brother, Friedrich, died when he was only two. This was devastating news to Nicholas and Alexandra. You know, and then they decided as a result that the people of Russia couldn't know. Even their own relatives were kept out of the loop. This was now a state secret. After 10 years of hoping for a son, they finally had one. The people were hopeful about the future. If they knew about Alexei's condition, it could destabilize the line of succession. Alexei might be passed over for Mikhail, Nicholas's younger brother, because Alexandra probably didn't have another pregnancy left in her. She was constantly in pain as it was. Another baby just wasn't in the cards. Now, Alexei was the rightful heir, and Alexandra and Nicholas wanted to make sure he would grow up and become the Tsar. As far as either one of them was concerned, Alexei's fate was in God's hands. There was nothing medicine could do for their boy. So why was hemophilia such an issue? Let's start with the fact that even today, okay, it's 2019, even today, there's no cure. Doctors can't explain why it even exists. Women carry the gene, boys contract the disease. Not all daughters will become carriers, as just as not all sons will suffer from hemophilia. It's basically one giant mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's a debilitating disease that can kill someone from something as small as slamming a knee into a table. You know, to anyone without hemophilia, that's a huge ow moment, right? I do that at least once a day. But to someone suffering from the condition, it's a toss-up. Alexi could be fine one minute, healthy as can be for months at a time, and then something could happen to change all that. Then for days or weeks, Alexi would be bedridden. The reason for that is a hemophiliac's blood does not clot the way it's supposed to. After bashing a knee into a table, the body bleeds internally for hours or days, getting into the muscles and between the joints. When something like this would happen to Alexi, he would be in agony. Okay, due to the nature of the disease, the doctors couldn't give him morphine. Um, You know, they didn't want the little boy to get addicted to the drug. So the only time he'd stop screaming from the pain was when he passed out. This poor freaking kid. Now, the only way his blood would start to clot naturally was when the body started creating purple patches of swelling around the area of the injury. Basically, huge bruises. The pressure created by this would slow the bleeding. If the blood flow slowed enough, the blood would clot. And eventually, the swelling would go through the normal bruise color changes before going away completely. If, for some reason, the blood didn't clot, Alexi would die from blood loss. So, of course, to make sure something like this didn't happen to Alexi, he was treated with the utmost care and was under constant supervision. Nicholas and Alexandra wanted to make sure he was safe, even from something as small as a paper cut. Something like that could keep bleeding, but luckily, bandaging it tightly would help his body form a clot to make it stop. But that wasn't always possible. You can't bandage a cut in the mouth or a bloody nose. But when Alexei was young, he almost died from a nosebleed. Unlike when his joints were filling with blood, there was no pain with this. Luckily, the bleeding eventually stopped and Alexei recovered. Alexei would never be able to live like the other boys, or even like his sisters. He could never play outside and climb trees with Anastasia or ride a horse. There could never be any games for him that might cause him to fall, bump into something, or get hit by something. No childish pursuits for Alexei. 
Nurses watched him at all times, until he was five years old when two sailors from the Imperial Navy were charged with watching him. Their names were Andrei Derevenko and Clementi Nagorny, and I am so sorry if there was any mispronunciations with that last one. So these two sailors would act as his protection, as friends, and when Alexei was sick, as nurses as well. You'd think that'd be easy, right? Little kid under the protection of two grown men? Mm, think again. While Alexei wasn't allowed to run around and get into trouble, he did anyway. He was a little boy. What's the saying? Boys will be boys? He was just as much a troublemaker as Anastasia was. He'd play pranks and barge in on his sister's tutoring sessions and only to be carried out of there like a little sack of potatoes. His family may have been telling him no for his own good, but he was going to find some way to have fun. So basically, Alexei was going, oh yes, oh yes. Papa says no, Alexei says yes. <laughs> if that's not a prince, I don't know what is. All right, so Nicholas took comfort in God, believing it to be God's will. But that's not to say he was okay with it. He wasn't the same man he was before. He was becoming more fatalistic. And those who knew him well noticed a change in him after Alexei was born. Unfortunately, most of those same people didn't know about Alexei's condition, so they couldn't understand what may have caused such a change in their czar. Alexandra was suffering twice over, once for Alexei and once for herself. She blamed herself. As we mentioned earlier, the gene for hemophilia passed from mother to son. There was a reason the Russian people called it the Curse of the Coburgs or the Hesse disease because the disease ran in her family. While Nicholas accepted, quote-unquote, Alexei's disease, Alexandra wondered why God had turned his back on her. She wanted to have a son so badly she had prayed for a long time to be blessed with this one. Alexandra thought God had listened, given her a gift, but instead her son suffered. She believed that if she prayed more often and for longer periods of time, then God would step in and help Alexei. The imperial family, determined to keep Alexei's condition a secret, closed themselves off from the rest of Russia and holed up in Tsarskaya Silo. This retreat from the world that they were required to be a part of was one of the worst decisions Nicholas and Alexandra ever made. In 1904, a war broke out between Russia and Japan after Nicholas wanted to expand into southern Manchuria. By 1905, the people's faith in the war pretty much disappeared. Russia wasn't doing well. The troops were tired and ready to go home. You know, hard to keep trekking on when you keep losing the battles. Side note, the war actually started in February 1904 before Alexei was born. Unfortunately, the war was having a really negative impact on the four Romanov sisters. Now, what do we mean by this? So, the way they spoke about the Japanese was absolutely horrible, saying awful things, like how they wanted all the Japanese to die. Their nanny Margareta literally had to explain to them that the Japanese were people just like the Russians. And only then did the girls have a light bulb moment. Oh, they're actually people. Holy shit. You know, this is due to Nicholas's own um, anti-Japan feelings after, as we mentioned in part one, where a samurai came at him and almost took off his head with a sword. And also, you know, the Russian court was quite xenophobic. So they were picking up really terrible habits and ideas. Now, because of the Russo-Japanese War, Alexandra couldn't work with all the charities she normally did, but she was able to help with the war relief. She tried to make sure there were enough supplies, but in the end, there weren't enough. But at least she tried. 
The foreign press could write whatever the hell they wanted about the war, but that didn't mean that the Russian people would actually be able to read it. When the newspapers arrived in Russia, there was someone there to make sure all the bad stuff was blacked out. Couldn't have the people reading such awful things. I wonder if it looked like a redacted CIA file. Too bad, didn't matter. As we mentioned already, the people weren't even a little bit happy. Not with the war, and most definitely not with the Tsar. He was not winning this war that he had dragged them into. On January 6, 1905, Nicholas was present for the Blessing of the Waters, which was a nifty little ritual that involved flagons with dragons, actually, just a flagon, holy water, dipping crosses into said water, and gun salutes to bring the Christmas season to a close. During this event, when the gun salutes went off, some badness ensued. Normally, the gun salute would mean firing blanks. However, on that day, three of the shots were very much not blanks. So one of the shots broke through a window leading to the Nicholas Hall at the Winter Palace. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Nicholas even smiled a little bit afterwards. Only six days into the year, and things were just about to get a whole lot worse. Literacy had been a problem in Russia for laborers, but by 1905, most of these city dwellers could read, and those who couldn't were actually the odd men out. Things were beginning to change, but the people wanted more, more pay, better working conditions, a workday that was no longer than eight hours, housing that wouldn't bleed them dry, and education available to all. You know, the same things people are complaining about now. So to make sure their demands were met, they went on strike. Men, women, children, all of them. Because yes, there were children working in the factories as well. And there was no way any of them were going to go back to work until the government listened to them and gave them everything they asked for. Leading the charge was Father George Gapon, but he wanted this to work, which meant the workers couldn't just strike without having any plans in place. But how could they make anyone listen? That's the tough part, but Gapon had an idea. He wanted to go directly to the Tsar. It had to work, right? I mean, the Tsar was the Batryshka, the father of the Russian people. According to Candace Fleming in The Family Romanov, he lived so close to heaven he didn't know about the people suffering on earth. But once he knew their problems, Nicholas could take care of them. That was the belief. On January 21st, Gopon had himself a little talk with some of the members of the government. He wanted to make sure that Nicholas was there to receive them at the Winter Palace at 2 p.m. the next day. Unfortunately, Nicholas and his family were already at Sarske Silo, and his government was not going to be telling him about this march on the palace. There would be no one there to greet the marchers unless you counted a full contingent of soldiers, meaning 12,000 men, with loaded rifles, aimed at the marchers. Nicholas had ordered the soldiers to stand outside the Winter Palace gates once he heard about the march. And this is where things get super ugly. Because obviously, with that many trigger-happy men at the ready, there was no way it was going to end well. On Sunday, January 22nd, 1905, with Capone in the front, the workers, all 120,000 of them, gathered together on the streets and made their way to the Winter Palace. The marchers had split into a couple groups, taking different paths that would let them meet at their final destination. They were, ex they were dressed in their best, waving Russian flags, singing God Save the Tsar, overall excited to bring their troubles to the Tsar so he could make them all go away. Some of them were even carrying portraits of Nicholas and Alexandra. The men, women, and children would never get that far. Soldiers stood in their way all over the city. The people were confused. If the soldiers didn't move, they'd be late for their very important date with the Tsar. The marchers continued to move forward, trying to get to the Winter Palace. And it was the wrong thing to do. 
but honestly, it wasn't their fault. They had no way of knowing what was going to happen. When they tried to get past the soldiers, they started shooting. It was a massacre. We have two numbers when it comes to how many people died that day. One of our sources says that 92 people died and the number of people wounded was more vague, a few hundred wounded. These were the official count, but they are much lower than our other source, which says that the number of people who died was between 150 to 200. The number of people wounded was so much higher, around 450 to 800 men, women, and children. The soldiers didn't discriminate. And just like that, the idea of the Bachishkazar was no more. Nicholas wasn't going to help them. His people were dying, and to them, Nicholas had become a cold ruler who cared little for them. The image of the loving Tsar was destroyed. January 22, 1905 became known as Bloody Sunday. What was Nicholas doing during this time? Well, he was going about business as usual. Breakfast with the family, you know, with some friends, a visit to the chapel for services, then off to the park with his kids where they played in the snow, and tea with Alexandra in her sitting room. All was well in Nicholas's world. Now, the march had begun in the morning, but it wasn't until the evening that Nicholas learned about what had happened, and his reaction boggles our minds. Okay. Yeah, he was upset by the news, but he placed the blame firmly on the shoulders of the workers. After all, they were the ones marching, right? They must have mobbed the soldiers. <laughs> that makes sense. They should be the ones who are sorry for their actions, not him, not his troops. He didn't see how it was his fault at all. He was completely blind, and Alexandra wasn't helping the situation by agreeing with him. She was like, yeah, it was the workers, those evil people. How could they? They should have known that coming near soldiers and flinging themselves at soldiers wasn't a good idea. They were living literally in the land of delusion, convincing themselves of a different scenario. And when Nicholas's government went to him and asked him to take a personal step back from the massacre by denying that he told the soldiers to shoot, Nicholas said no. Instead, the man asked some of the workers to come to the palace so that he could chew their ear off about how revolutions are bad and that they shouldn't get involved with such things. Maybe, maybe, if there had been zero casualties, Nicholas's solution wouldn't have been so bad. But there were at least a hundred dead and many more wounded. A lecture was the last thing his people needed. They needed a government that cared about what happened to them. Even Count Leo Tolstoy, yes, THE Tolstoy, the writer, sent advice to Nicholas in a letter. Someone Leo considered to be a good man. He, But, you know, thankfully, he was balls-eyed honest. If Nicholas didn't get a shit in gear and change his government, it wasn't going to end well. The government needed to suit the people, not the other way around. Autocracy wasn't working anymore. Nicholas refused to believe that things needed to change. He figured that since he'd accomplished some good things, you know, like the railroad and the creation of jobs from all the factories that were being built, things were fine. He believed that things would get better for the lower class. After all, there was always a few bumps along the road when, you know, it comes to change. So let's remember that this is only the beginning of 1905. Bloody Sunday was only the first domino to fall. Nicholas's mother called it the year of nightmares, and that was putting it lightly. If you thought it was impossible for things to get worse, you're super wrong, because boy, did they ever. And very quickly, in February, the imperial family took a hit. Nicholas's uncle, Grand Duke Sergei, was assassinated by bombing in Moscow when he was leaving his home at the Kremlin. This is the same Sergei who was married to Ella, Alexandra's sister. Ella, sadly, heard the blast and found him in pieces when she ran outside. Sergei was, um, to put it delicately, heated. He was 100% in favor of autocracy and despised the revolutionaries who were trying to put an end to his family's dynasty. 
Ella was such an incredible woman. You know, she comforted Sergei's coachman while he lay dying. She lied to him and told him that Sergei had survived anything to ease the man's pain. But that's not all. Lady made her way down to the prison to visit Kaliev, the man who killed Sergei. Ella offered to plead mercy on his behalf if he would only ask Nicholas for forgiveness. Obviously, he refused. What he did was for the revolution, and his death would also serve a purpose. Ella's life was completely different after that. After a few years, she retreated from the world as much as she could while still living in Moscow. She became the abbess of an abbey she had built called the Convent of Mary and Martha. As people were basically rioting in the streets, okay, Nicholas pretty much stuck his fingers in his ears and said, la la la, while he and his family remained absent from it all. Sure, the people, if they really wanted to, could buy pictures of the family, but seeing them in person? Not going to happen. The family stayed behind the gates of Alexander Palace. When they did travel into St. Petersburg, they were constantly under guard. No one was allowed to know where they were going, what route they'd be taking, if they brought a picnic basket, nothing. It was all top secret. Which only added to the anger of the people, no doubt. Nicholas allowed Bloody Sunday to happen, and now he was hiding from his own people? Really? Worst of all, Nicholas refused to understand what this meant. He was an intelligent man. He could have put the pieces together if he wanted to. But he didn't. He preferred to believe in the lie that the people loved him, needed him, and wanted him. He even went on a fucking cruise while people were still striking. By the fall of 1905, there had been over 1,600 strikes. If that's not telling Nicholas the people are pissed off, then I don't know what would. But by all means, please, lounge on your boat and play in the water while your people are suffering. Sounds good to us. But the people kept striking. They wanted to make a change, and if Nicholas wasn't going to listen voluntarily, they would make him. In October, one by one, Workers in different professions walked off their jobs. Wouldn't be surprised if they were working one second, dropping a mallet the next, and piecing the fuck out. The country was coming to a dead stop. No more printers, no more railway workers, no more teachers, doctors, lawyers, dancers, and so many others. Millions of people joined the strikes. And they got violent. Any business owner that didn't join the marches risked having their business ruined. When the troops fired their weapons on Bloody Sunday on innocent people, it was Nicholas who drew first blood. Now it was the people's turn. They would make sure the cities couldn't operate until they got what they wanted. And what did they want? A Duma. Why did they want it? So they could elect people into government that would give, a, give them a voice. When did they want it? E fucking immediately. The idea of the Duma came from the St. Petersburg Soviet, which was an organization that appeared out of thin air in the beginning of 1905. One day it didn't exist, the next it did. Led by Marxist Leon Trotsky, it was a council of people elected to represent each 1,000 workers and organize all the strikes. St. Petersburg Soviet preached peace and order, but we don't know how they define those words because... Things took a turn at one point when the Soviet claimed they would destroy the factories that remained open and working. Because they wanted everyone involved, they weren't going to shrink back from forcing it to happen. The St. Petersburg Soviet inspired other cities to create Soviets of their own, but they were eradicated as quickly as they formed. Nicholas didn't like these Soviets. He saw them for what they were, a threat to his autocracy. 
So he used his authority to make the Soviets illegal and had the leaders of these organizations arrested. So the steps Nicholas took to suppress these Soviets didn't sit well with Prime Minister Viet. So he did the only logical thing. He went to the Tsar and told him the truth, forcing Nicholas to listen to reason. Russia was standing on a precipice. Either things changed or Nicholas was going to have a full-blown revolution on his hands. Nicholas then had to choose. Does he kill his own people to put an end to all the strikes, or does he make some concessions that the people are quite literally clambering for? Decisions, decisions. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that he gagged at the word Duma. Yuck. Democracy. How Western. He really wanted no part of it. Remember, it had been hammered into his head since the time he was a child. Autocracy, autocracy, autocracy. But his ministers weren't just going to take it. You have to do it, they said. I don't wanna, Nicholas said. Sign your damn name, Viet said to him. After he drafted a document that sanctioned the concessions. But no, Nicholas wouldn't do it. He was going to stand his ground at the cost of his people. I don't think he realized that if he kept killing his people, eventually he's not going to have anyone to rule over. Having had enough of Nicholas's shit, his cousin, Grand Duke Nicholas Nikolaevich, who was also commander of the St. Petersburg Military District, barged into Nicholas's office on October 30th and told him he either signed the document or the Grand Duke was going to blow his own brains out right then and there. And so, Nicholas ponied up with a big old frown on his face and signed Viet's document the very same day. It became known as the October Manifesto. So, what concessions did Nicholas make? The manifesto granted the people the equivalent of the U.S. First Amendment. They could say what they wanted, they could meet with whoever they wanted, they could join whatever organization tickled their fancy. Nicholas also signed off on the creation of a Duma, which gave the people a voice in their own government. As a part of that, the Duma was granted full authority over the laws created. There was no oversight. What was once Nicholas's domain now belonged to a group of elected officials. Robert K. Massey said it best in Nicholas and Alexandra. The manifesto transformed Russia from an absolute autocracy into a semi-constitutional monarchy. And even more, people from the lower class could be elected and serve in the Duma. To say the people were happy is an understatement. They were over the moon. The strikes stopped, people started singing, letting their voices be heard. The people believed that this was the beginning of a new and better Russia. Now, their lives would finally change for the better. And we're going to bring part two to a close right here. Uh, We will be back with part three on the first Saturday of September, which is, that's right before Labor Day, right? Yes. I think so. Yes, that's right before Labor Day here in the U.S. So for your lovely three-day weekend, we will bring you part three of our Romanov's miniseries. And in part three, we are going to pick up with the creation of the Duma, and we are going to introduce you to... Lenin and Rasputin. The super creep. He's super creepy. Basically, yeah. But all right, guys. So thanks so much for hanging out with us in this episode of Dear World Love History. And we will catch you in the next episode. Historians out. Hi, I'm Heather. And I'm Rhonda. And we're two wine-loving, psych-nerd, long-distance friends who host the podcast Wine Mind, where each episode we break down a psychology topic while getting buzzed on a bottle of wine. And sometimes we make up words. 
Have you ever poured back a few glasses of wine and found yourself wondering, why is wine so awesome? Why is it so hard to make friends in adulthood? What's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? If so, then Wine Mind is the podcast for you. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And check out our website at winemindpodcast.com. You can also find us on the social medias as at Wine Mind Podcast. So uncork a bottle and join us. Cheers! Are you a tackle football fan? Kick off your day with an episode of Colts Corner. A group of passionate Colts fans discuss the latest news around Indianapolis Colts football. You don't want to miss us. Follow us on Facebook, Colts Corner One, and on Twitter at Colts underscore Corner One, and all major podcast platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.